This is Luke 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of his friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to encounter your word again, and yet there is much fear and trepidation because we see in this prayer that our lives can't stay static. We can't stay in the place that we are and yet pray this prayer with integrity. I pray you would move us. I pray you would draw us to you. I pray that you would change the orientation of our hearts that we so quickly grasp for everything that we think is ours, that we so much want to be on the throne of our own lives, and yet you call us down. Father, I pray that you would let us hear that call. Let us respond in faith, respond in hope. Lord, we knock this morning in hopes that you would not only listen, but that you would bless the reading and the preaching of this word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. My father, you may have some power, but I'm not sure you do. Or if you do, then I'm not sure you care. But if you're listening, well, here it goes. I was wondering if you could help me out. Make my name great. I want to be safe, popular, successful, happy, and well thought of. And I know somewhere in the Bible you talk about having a good reputation, being a good thing. Also, would you bring forth my kingdom and help me accomplish my agenda? Would you make my life as it will be in heaven? Give me enough bread today to last three lifetimes. Forgive me for my sins. Well, I'm not sure that they're really sins per se, but help me to change my bad habits and those indulgences that are preventing my full happiness. Assist me in forgiving those who sin against me. Well, except for my parents, my spouse, and my boss. They've really hurt me. And if I forgive them today of what they've done, what will stop them from doing it again? Lead me not into any tests or trials. They make me feel very uncomfortable and out of control. 
Certainly, you wouldn't put me in situations that I can't handle or might be painful. Oh, and deliver me from the evil one. Well, I'm not sure if I really believe in the devil, but there are definitely people in my life that act like demons and devils, and I'd appreciate it if you'd deliver me from them. Because there are so many people that suck me dry, would you populate my life a bit more with people that affirm me? Don't make me do the things that you say you don't want me to do. But if I'm tempted, help me to remember that you're in charge of all things and that it's therefore your fault that I'm tempted. That would encourage me a lot. For mine is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that's how I often pray when I pray the Lord's Prayer. That's kind of what's behind the words that I say. And maybe you can hear your own motivations in that prayer. It's tremendously important that we understand what the Lord's Prayer means when we say it. We say it each and every week. Some of us pray this daily, at least sometimes, in our home or at the table. And so it's tremendously important that we know what we mean by these words. But it's also tremendously relevant to our time. Sociologists will describe two parallel tracks in our culture that are seemingly paradoxical. One is a a growing confidence in technology, that almost every human problem has a technological, a material solution. But alongside that, parallel to it, seemingly in contradiction, is the rise, not not the diminishing of a religious instinct, but the rise of a religious instinct, that we live in a very technologically minded age, and yet an age that is very starved for the experience of the soul. The Lord's Prayer is very relevant to both of these trends. On one, it challenges this technological drive to commodify, to control everything by our ingenuity, by our inventiveness, that it says that there are human problems, that there are human ambitions, that there are human hopes that can't be solved, that can't be commodified, that can't be controlled by our technical prowess that there's something out there which can't be controlled. And it also challenges this instinct to create a designer religion, this suspicion towards institutional religion, and yet we still want to be spiritual people, and so we pick and choose. We design our own religion. And the Lord's Prayer says, no, this is the way that you're to approach God. Could it be? that something so prosaic, something that even someone that's never set foot in a church before probably could recite, something so well-worn and familiar could be the true path to spirituality, the true, the only way of relating to God. We're going to tackle this passage from the perspective of how to pray like Jesus. The disciples ask him, Jesus teaches how to pray, and he says, here it is. Here's how you are to pray. We're going to look at how he prays, and we see three things, that it's regular, that it's reliant, and that it's relational. Praying like Jesus is regular, it's reliant, and it's relational. So first of all, when you pray regularly, the disciples are asking, the context that they would be asking is, Jesus, teach us how to pray like you do when we pray three times a day. They would be in this regular rhythm of life of praying three times a day. And so they asked Jesus, 
What are the words we're supposed to use? How are we to pray? What type of concepts? What's the scope of prayer as we pray three times a day? Now, the Lord's Prayer, as we have in in Luke, which is a condensed version, or in Matthew, is not necessarily uh, saying that we have to use these exact words every time we pray. In fact, Jesus prays in other parts of the Gospels in a much more expansive way. But the Lord's Prayer is the concepts, the scope that is to approximate what prayer should be like. What are the types of things that we should be praying for? Generally speaking, you spend time recognizing who God is, that you recognize his lordship, that you recognize and praise him for who he is, for his character, for his personality, for his work in the world. Then you ask that his will be done in your life, in the world, in your own heart. And then you pray for daily needs, for forgiveness. You ask God for forgiveness, for direction. Now, maybe you think, well, that sounds great, but I really don't have time. I don't have room and space in my life to pray. I can barely get out the door in the morning. How could I possibly begin to pray? And if you're a Christian, you've probably heard these stories about the heroes of the faith that spent an hour, two hours, three hours a day praying. You think, well, there's no way I could ever get there. But you have to remember that took a lifetime of practice for those people to value prayer enough to see the relevance of prayer in their daily lives to where they wanted to spend that much time. Don't start there. You'll inevitably fail. Start small. Start with five minutes. Even if it's falling asleep at night, you're groggy, you just want to go to sleep, start there. And you'll pray more. You'll pray more when you want to, when you begin to feel dependent upon prayer. When you begin to see its relevance to daily life, then you'll begin to pray seven minutes, 10 minutes. Then when you hit not just the crises and the panics of life, but just the everyday mundane details, you'll be more accustomed to bringing those into, into your prayer life. Now, what have we been seeing that Luke is doing? What's the context for him teaching us about prayer? What's the context for the disciples to ask that question? Well, Luke has been describing for us what it means to live daily as one who is a member of the kingdom of God, one who understands the gospel, not just in an esoteric or theoretical sense, but what does it mean to actually live? What does it mean to actually walk in light of the kingdom of God? And what Luke has told us throughout this book is that if you're a member of the kingdom of God, if you're a Christian, you've been thrown into a movement that is putting an end to violence and oppression and poverty everywhere around the world, but particularly in the circumference, the sphere that you inhabit, that you're enlisted, you're conscripted to bring the good news of the kingdom to the marginalized, the poor, the friendless, those that are in spiritual darkness, that you've been enlisted to do that simply by virtue of you being a Christian and that you're to forget former social boundaries that you have aligned yourself against others with because all are one in Christ. Now, that's just a small smattering of some of the themes that we've encountered. And then he says, and here's how you pray. You see, it's not a matter that is altogether different. It's not an outward life, and now I'm going to talk to you about your inward life. Instead, in the Lord's Prayer, in the context of Luke, those two things are interwoven. They're connected. There's a link 
between the two. And what Luke is saying is that those who have a deep inner life, those who commune with God, those who pray regularly in the way that Jesus would want you to pray, can't ignore the needs of the poor and disadvantaged. Those who pray regularly, those who encounter God in his word, can't knowingly and willingly ignore the needs of other people. Those who know Jesus, the risen Savior, and have learned to pray like he would have us pray, can't partition our relationships any longer based upon old barriers, based upon artificial barriers. This is what he's getting at in verse 4, where he says, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. What he is saying is that a heart that is cold to other people's need for forgiveness hasn't really experienced the forgiveness of God itself. That you can presume upon God's forgiveness being active in your own life insofar as you witness yourself bringing that forgiveness to bear upon the relationships that you have. Your forgiveness, in other words, isn't that which brings forgiveness, that which earns forgiveness, but it's that which gives evidence for, to, for, to your own forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, they say, for we also forgive those who sin against us. Do you see the context of the prayer saying, God, forgive us again? Because we see in our lives that you have forgiven us. We see because we are forgiving other people. It's not meritorious. It's not a way to earn God's forgiveness. It's saying that we have evidence that you're at work in our lives, that you're present, that you're real. Therefore, forgive us again. Prayer is regular. Not so much in terms of its matter of frequency, but in its vitality and its connectedness to every area of your life, it's regular. That as you go through life, as you learn to pray like Jesus, you'll learn to bring your prayer life into every facet of life, even the most mundane, menial details. It's regular. It's as you go. Here's how you pray. Secondly, it's reliant or dependent. Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. When you and I pray, we are praying, whether we're praying in a Christian sense or not, we're praying theologically and we're praying anthropologically. Or in other words, we're pray, how we pray indicates what we think of God and what we think of ourselves. The Lord's Prayer says that God is wholly other, that he's unique, that he's powerful, that he is involved in the affairs of the world and yet transcendent, that as we pray, we must submit not only our prayer life and the words that we use, but our entire life to God. We pray theologically. He says he will not be commodified or adopted into our system. Here's the system. Here is the, what you are to pray for. Here's how you are to pray. But we're also invited to bring our daily, everyday concerns and needs to him. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name, or hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us today our daily bread. You see, not only is he holy, but he is good. Not only is he transcendent, but he is imminent. 
Not only is he omnipotent and all-powerful, but he's near. And he cares about everyday concerns that you and I have. There's no other way of talking about God. There's no other religious system that describes God in such tender and yet powerful ways. In fact, in fatherly, familial ways. There's no other system. You can reject Christianity, but you can't say it's just like everything else. And I'm going to pick this little piece of Christianity. Prayer reminds us as well, anthropologically, our view of ourselves, our view of humanity, that we are not the center of the universe, that we are not the power source, that we are utterly reliant, we are utterly dependent upon another. And part of prayer is getting used to this reality. Part of prayer is bumping up against our own finitude, our own fallenness, recognizing that we are utterly dependent upon God. And thus, prayer is a window into your and my spiritual health. And that can be very threatening and scary. When, prayer is a window into your spiritual health because you pray when you feel dependent. You pray when you feel flummoxed, when you feel exposed, when you feel vulnerable. It's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. I don't know if that's necessarily or entirely true, but most human beings reach out in a panic to something outside of themselves. You see movies as the plane goes down and everyone starts praying, whether they're Christians or not. They're reaching out for something beyond them because they feel anemic. They feel little. They feel small and helpless, and so therefore they pray. So if your prayer life is stunted, if your prayer life is anemic, you shouldn't just redouble your efforts to pray more. You should ask, why? Why do I not pray? Is it because I see myself as confident? I see myself as capable. I see God as very distant and unconcerned about my daily needs. I can pretty much take care of myself. I don't feel outmatched by life and need God to intervene. In a very real sense, our prayer life is an indicator of our theology, of what we think about God and what we think of ourselves. Who is on the throne and who is dependent? Learning to, pr- learning to pray like Jesus is learning to live as if you're not all-powerful, as if you're utterly dependent on someone else. It's learning to live as if you believe the gospel, that God saved you from your self-assurance, that God saved you from your self-confidence, that God saved you from your self-control, that he said, step down off of the throne and let me be seated there, and let me be seated there because I am a gracious and merciful and loving king who will treat you as a son or daughter. Learning to pray is learning to believe the gospel. Now, as we think about it that way, there's utter relief and there's utter terror as we realize that this is what prayer looks like. There's utter relief because in our most honest moments, we do understand that we are weak, small, finite human beings and that there's a lot of scary things in the world that we're overmatched by. And so it's a relief to know that there's a caring, powerful, loving God that we can actually pray to and reach out to. But it's also utterly terrifying because most of us have built our lives on our own competencies. 
We most of us have had our own way, have set our own agenda, have tried desperately to keep ourselves in control of our lives. So it's terrorizing to pray the Lord's Prayer because it says that you are no longer at the helm of life, that you are no longer in control. In fact, you never were, but the illusion has been shot down. Praying the Lord's Prayer is terrifying because it's capsizing everything that you've staked your life on up to this point. Everything that you've thought was true before, every way you've lived before, it's an overthrow of your autonomy and self-role. One of my professors says this about prayer. What then is the nature of petitionary prayer? It is in essence rebellion. Rebellion against the world in its fallenness, the absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is in this its negative aspect, the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is, is, the, that is at odds with the norm as originally described and established by God. As such, it is in itself an expression of the unbridgeable chasm that separates good from evil, the declaration that evil is not a variation on good, but it's very antithesis. And what prayer does is it takes you off the center, off the throne. It takes you and your agenda out of the center of your life and exchanges it for what God is doing. Everything that stands at odds against God and his purposes, including your own, prayer is a rebellion against that. It's like throwing a bomb at the status quo. That's what prayer does. Praying the Lord's Prayer, therefore, is utterly terrifying if we really understand what it means. It's regular, it's reliant, and then also, and finally, it's relational. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What he is saying is that you know how to do it. You know how to give good gifts to your children, and you're not me. I'm God. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And what he is saying is that I'm not a boss expecting a wage. I'm not a judge that's wagging his finger at you. I'm not a banker who won't let go of his resources to those underneath him. I'm not a brick wall. I am a father. And Jesus says that you're coming to not just a father, but the father. The image that the Lord's Prayer gives us is that of a small child who's completely dependent upon his father, his parents, and he crawls up into their father's lap and says, Dad, I've got a problem, and I need you to help me with it. Dad, I've done something wrong, and I need you to forgive me for it. That's the image of the Lord's Prayer. That's the image of the fatherly, tenderly attention that, that God gives to his children. Even if we've had a bad father, we still have a sense of what a father should be like, what the norm, what the best father would be like. And even if you've had a fantastic father like I have, you can often, nonetheless, have insecurity. You can feel like an orphan. You can feel, you can wonder 
whether the people that say they love you really do or if they're just placating you or if they just kind of like you. Jesus is arguing that you can know for sure with God that he loves you intimately because of two things, his promises and his integrity. Now let's back up just a little bit because we need to look at this little parable that Jesus told because it's probably nagging you in the back of your head if you were paying attention as I read because it seems to say exactly the opposite. Now parables are often very difficult to interpret so I enlisted the help of the internet to find the meaning of this one and I found a website that did first drafts of Jesus' parables. And it says, Then Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside says, Okay, just give me a minute. And he goes to one of his friends and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of a friend of mine on a journey has come to the friend who's my friend, and that friend has nothing to set before his friend. One of the disciples said, wait, doesn't the original person's friend need three loaves of bread because a friend of his friend who's on a journey has come to the friend of the original person's friend and that friend has nothing to set before his first friend? Or is that what you just said? It doesn't matter, said Jesus. The point is that God can get you free bread. Maybe. What is the point of this little parable that Jesus told? And how does it fit into the larger context? Now, it seems to show God as this rather cranky friend who's very reluctant to get up and help. And then it's your job as a petitioner to make him do his job. It's your job to keep knocking. And whether or not God answers is dependent upon how persistent, how audacious you are in your asking. Now, we need to address this because who wants to pray if God is like that? Who's encouraged to pray if it's your duty to pray persistently enough to get the things in your life that you need? Now, we don't often do exegetical sort of spade work in the minutia of what the text says, but here we need to. So let's put on our thinking caps for just a moment. We're going to end with this, but it's very important that we understand this parable. Now, first of all, if that's what Jesus is saying, if it's that it's up to you to be audacious enough to ask in order to secure what you need, what's the point of telling that in the larger context? What's the point of then saying in verse 9, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The conclusion of this parable has to be an encouragement to pray. It can't be saying that God is cranky and you have to really convince him that you really want what you're asking for. Now, secondly, he says, suppose you have a friend. Jesus is setting up here something that's going to be very difficult to believe. It's like what we would mean when we say, you're not going to believe this one. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, can you imagine going to a neighbor and asking for help to entertain a friend and getting this response? Can you imagine that? It's key to understand that what Jesus is using in that verse 5 is a form of rhetoric that in the ancient world demands a negative response. As we've seen over and over in Luke, hospitality is not just a virtue. It's not just something that is recommended or something that you should do. It is an absolute non-negotiable in that community. 
No reader would be able to imagine denying hospitality to someone because of silly excuses about locked doors and sleeping children. What Jesus is saying is that there's no way that this would happen in your community. Even though the sleeper is a little bit angry at you, there's no way he wouldn't get up and answer the door and provide you with what you needed. That's the very basis of the societal contract there implies hospitality, not just for your guests, but for the guests of the community. Now, thirdly, verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Well, that's not what the text says. It doesn't say shameless audacity. The whole line, this whole passage describes not the host, not the person that is asking. It's all describing the sleeper. It doesn't change in that little part there where it says your shameless audacity. It's not referring to your. It's referring to him. Now, translators hundreds of years ago began to see a problem with this text because this word that's translated shameless audacity is normally a very negative word. And so they said, well, surely it can't apply to the sleeper, who in this context, in the parable, is God. So they said, well, it can't be that. It can't be that we're ascribing this negative connotation to God. So what are we going to do? We're going to fix it. (laughs) We're going to change what we think this says means, and we're going to then apply it to the person who's knocking. So instead of it being shamelessness, which is what it means in the Greek, it now means persistence. And it now applies to the person knocking. And therefore, for centuries, as we've read this passage, Christians have said, well, what this means is you have to be very persistent in knocking. You have to be very audacious in what you can ask, about, ask to God. You have to be very bold. And there's other parts of Scripture that would convey that, but that's not what this text is saying. This is very different. Now, I realize I'm asking a lot of you to believe me here, <laughs> to trust me, But I've done my homework. I promise that I'm not making something up. In fact, I read about 40 pages just on this one little part here this week and on this one little word. Now, what I've come to see, and Kenneth Bailey, who's a professor of New Testament in Beirut, he spent years walking around visiting with peasants, visiting the type of community that would be receiving this visitor. And, would under, how, and asking, how would they have heard, in their Aramaic terms, how would they have heard this pat, parable, along with others? He wasn't just looking at this, but he wrote about 20 pages just on this one little word. And what he is proposing, and what I think is right, and there's others as well that have said this, is that he proposes an, an inadequacy of the Greek to translate the Aramaic underlying concept. The word underneath is shamelessness. It's not audacity. It's not persistence. And so how could that then be given as an attribute of God, as a virtue that God would hold? But what he says is that the better rendering in the Aramaic, that the Greek is inadequate to translate, is an avoidance of shame. Okay, now put that on the tack board just a minute. We're going to circle right back around to it. But bread in the ancient world was not the main dish, okay? Bread was like forks and spoons. It's what you dipped into the main dish in order to eat. So it was the basic bare necessities. 
If someone was asking just for bread, they would be starving. And so certainly no one would give up, would, would not give them that necessity. But to refuse bread to someone became, it was the most menial portion. And for someone to refuse that would bring great shame upon the sleeper, the person who's being asked. And knowing that that was just part of the meal, the person knocking had to then go around to the rest of the community to gather up all of the necessities for a meal. Bread was not all he was asking for. And so the sleeper, the one who was being asked, would be utterly shamed in that community where hospitality was the, the premier virtue. And so what it is saying is to avoid shame, the sleeper would get up and answer the call. He would meet this need. Of course he wouldn't give, he, of course he wouldn't avoid this need. Of course, you see the application. The point is not the persistence or the audacity of the knocker, but it's the commitment of the person being asked not to violate his own integrity. In other words, okay, here's the bottom line. In other words, when you go to this type of neighbor, even though everything is against you, it's night, he's asleep in the bed, the door is locked, his children are asleep, yet you will receive more than you ask. This is because your neighbor has integrity. And he won't violate his promise, his membership in this community. He won't be shamed in this community by violating what his oath is. And notice what he gets is not just bread, but he gets everything he asks for. In spite of his coming at a late hour, in spite of everything that he's asking, in spite of the circumstances, he gets not only the bread, but he gets everything. He gets the whole meal. He gets everything in order to entertain this gift. And what the passage is saying, what Luke is getting at, is if you're confident, remember, Aramaic community, if you're confident of having your needs met when you go to such a neighbor in the middle of the night, how much more can you rest assured that when you take your, your request to God, a father who loves you, that they will be met? Do you see how that interpretation, it totally coheres with the rest of the passage. It's exactly what he is saying about the egg and the scorpion and the bread and the snake. If you, though you are evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more can you expect the God who loves you to provide for what you need? If you can expect that you can go to someone in the middle of the night and ask for bread and they give you an abundant feast, how much more can you ask of God and expect that he'll give you what you need. Praying the Lord's Prayer, friends, is not throwing up ritualized words to an uninterested, distant God who may, if you knock hard enough, if you yell loud enough, if you repeat yourself enough, then maybe he'll intervene. That's not what it's saying. Praying the Lord's Prayer is praying to a Father who loves you, who knows what you need, who's ready not just to give you what you ask for, bread, your basic necessity, but is willing and able and stands ready to give you life, to give you abundance. You're coming to a father who won't answer just because you get the mantra right, not just because you ask enough times. No, you're coming to a father who will never shame himself by forgetting his promises to you. That's how you know that God actually loves you. 
is that he will never forget his promises. His own integrity won't allow him to dislike, to unlove you. He will never bring shame upon his name by being a bad father. He will always be good. He always stands ready to listen because he far supersedes any experience of fatherhood or neighborliness that we've ever experienced in this life. In one sense, the entire gospel, the entire hope of redemption is summarized in the very first two words, our father. That sinful people who deserve nothing are invited to come and ask for everything. Sinful people are invited to come and boldly ask for salvation. To say, I deserve nothing. Would you just please give me a piece of bread? And God says, no, I'll give you life eternal. I'll give you life forevermore. I will give you eternal bread. I will give you my own son. His body will be broken for you so that you can enjoy life. Friends, we don't even know what we're asking when we come before God and say, help me. God is saying, I will give you everything. I will far far supersede what you're asking for. People who haven't said the right words still get grace. People who don't get the mantra right still get mercy. People who come just asking for daily needs are granted life eternal. Friends, that's the encouragement to pray. It's not be diligent enough. It's not be persistent enough. And then maybe God will hear. It's friends pray because you're praying to a merciful father who loves you and has given his own son to guarantee that. He will never shame himself by going back on his promises. You are safe. You are secure. He knows your name and he knows what you need. So pray. That's the message of the Lord's Prayer. And that's really the message of this table. Let's pray now as we prepare to confess our faith and come to the table. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it never returns void. We thank you that it is useful to us. But Father, it's not just for pragmatic concerns that we come forward, that we come to this table, that we encounter your word. It is because you are worthy. It is because you are good. It is because you are a father who loves us, who invites us to do so. And I pray that we would take advantage of that, that we would presume upon you because you are good and your grace always outruns our fear. It always outruns our sinfulness. Would you let us be bold in approaching you because you sent your son to pay every price, every penalty that could possibly stand in our way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.